This is Meet the Composer. The first time I encountered the music of Donica Dennehy, I was sight-reading the viola part of a new theater piece about Ireland's great famine called The Hunger. I had a bunch of music to learn for that session, and a cursory glance at my part had shown a long string of repeating eighth notes that seemed pretty simple. So the first rehearsal comes, the conductor gives a downbeat, and wham, my part starts whizzing by at a blistering pace. Crazy to reach string harmonics are around every turn, and the meter is in constant flux. I learned a couple things that day. Number one, this composer not only writes rad music, his scores are so well-written and so clear that they look deceptively simple. And number two, I really need to start preparing more thoroughly for first rehearsals. From New York Public Radio's Q2 Music, this is Meet the Composer, the show that takes a deep look into the minds of contemporary classical composers. Today on our show, composer Donica Dennehy. I'm Donica Dennehy. Donica has been praised by The Wire for inhabiting a sound world all his own. He's received commissions from basically a laundry list of amazing people, including Don Upshaw, Icebreaker, the percussion group of The Hague, the San Francisco Contemporary Music Players, Kronos Quartet, among many, many others. Today on the program, we're tracing the evolution of Donica's music, from his childhood recording 25-minute-long recorder sonatas into a tape recorder, through the epic work we're hearing a bit of right now, Gra August Boss. Donica's music has a way of combining the physics of resonance with a keen sense of poetry and recombining old instruments in creative, surprising ways. A little while back, Donica joined us in the Q2 Music Studio to talk to us about how he got his start. Donica, thank you for joining us in the studio today. Thank you, Nadia. So where did this obsession with music and resonance and sound come from? What was your childhood like? How did you first become interested in music? I would say that mine is not the standard childhood for someone who's involved in so-called classical music in that my parents uh, were not musicians at all. In fact, (laughs) they hate me saying this, but it's true. We didn't have a record player in the house. Uh, We had radios, so it's not like we had no technology and, and TV. So I became interested in music. I started at school, tin whistle and recorder and things like that, and really came obsessed with it very, very fast. They bought a record player then. My father was, you know, very excited and, and, and a piano or whatever. And he was a writer, a radio player. That kind of inspired me to instantly start composing. So I was nine, really, so it was quite late. And um, so I would write these like 25 minute recorder sonatas. <laughs> and I am dying. I wish you had a recording of this 25. 25- I do. Do have, you really? Yes, they're on cassettes at home. I used to play them into a cassette player and then transcribe them. And so I wrote a whole load of compositions, started instantly. And so I started then the flute and then taking composition classes with this guy, a uh, wild character called William York. He was from. England and he had set up the Dublin Sinfonia and then I think there was there had been some scandal about how it was organised so he had to leave the country in a, in a hurry but that was an awful loss to me because he was so inspiring I used to love my lessons with him uh, and he'd introduced me to Stockhausen and everything so I went to see Stockhausen when I was 10 and uh, it was a massive education So, I mean, my tastes were fairly clear almost early on because I liked the energy of stuff like the Brandenburg concertos as well. And then, you know, Irish traditional music as well, which I used to play. And I sort of never stopped. I mean, I kind of thought I was going to be a composer from after two weeks of music lessons. And I never really veered from that career path. <laughs> I never had much doubt. It's kind of weird. So... 
So for me, one of the one of the real hallmarks of your music is your use of the harmonic series. Do you think you could explain a little bit about what the harmonic series is? Wow, that's a tall order. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you think of any sound that we hear, let's say an A that the orchestra tunes to A440. Let's say you play that A on a piano. Uh, so let's say it's a piano concerto, so they have to tune to the piano. That A isn't just that pitch. What 440 means is that it vibrates at 440 times per second. That actually produces the A sound. And we can, we can have a computer make that perfect sine wave 440. Which Absolutely. is the most pure version of a pitch. Right? Exactly, yeah. Whereas when you play it on a piano or a clarinet or an oboe, you're getting all these overtones as well. In fact, that's what defines the timbre. So you get all these upper overtones that are produced and they, as it were, give that A its particular type of sound. Every naturally occurring sound that you hear as a pitch has higher overtones. And so you can actually analyse this these days since computers. And that's what the spectral composers did. They analysed uh, individual notes like an A in a trombone or an E or whatever and looked at the way that spectrum developed and then orchestrated it, the spectrum of those overtones. What sort of drew you to the harmonic series and to that style of writing? Yeah, I had been interested in the harmonic series for a while. When I was a grad student at the University of Illinois, I remember this presentation given by this musicologist called Lev Kobliakov on new trends in European music or whatever. And he played this piece by Gerard Grise called Modulation. And I thought, wow, I hadn't heard anything like this. This really knocked me. And so from that moment on, I became really interested in what could be done musically using the overtone series and, and also became really interested in people like Lamont Young. And the stuff coming out of the American experimental tradition, James Tenney, what he was doing with overtone series. And it just seemed to make real sense for me in terms of being able to create these amazing pitch timbre combinations. This is pianist Lisa Moore performing Donica's Stainless Staining for Piano and Electronics a piece that uses this spectralish concept of orchestrating overtones in combination with this relentless, almost reckless energy. This is almost, in a way, exactly what we're talking about, a kind of a rhythmic use of material that's derived from the overtone series. So you have this piano, which is playing an equal temperament, although often choosing notes that are within, uh, let's say, a spectrum of overtones, and then accompanied by all these detuned pianos on soundtrack. And it's hell for leather, really. It's, it doesn't relent, this piece. When you say detuned pianos, how are they tuned differently? Yeah, actually, in a way, detuned is maybe a bit of a misnomer. They're retuned so that they all produce pitches within a massive overtone series based on a G-sharp. And that G-sharp actually doesn't even exist in the piano because it's lower. I, I imagine a G-sharp is quite lower, so I can get 100 overtones. I have seven pianos on tape which are retuned to give all these notes within that overtone series against Lisa playing live. piano with these retuned pianos is, are just so, so effective. 
it seems like you're pretty comfortable manipulating electronics or using that as a tool in your music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, I, well, I started off as an acoustic composer, but then I, I did a lot of electronic music when I was a grad student in Illinois. And, and then in the early days of Crash, a lot of the pieces were, were involving electronics and instruments and video electronic and instruments. Let's, let's turn to a piece that you wrote, which actually doesn't incorporate any electronics at all. However, when I listen to it, um, that's actually kind of a surprise. In other words, the, the, the sonorities that you're creating in this, what's essentially a really old form, which is the piano trio, yeah. um, sound completely modern and totally futzed with. The piece I'm talking about is Bulb. How, how did you write this piece? Or what, what is uh, the electronic sounding element that I'm hearing? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, sometimes when I hear this live, I keep on getting shocked, even though it's my piece. I go, where's, where's the electronic transformation? Or is that being amplified now? And it's not. It's the way, these, the, way the overtones uh, interact with each other in, in this world. And I actually think, you know, I did deliberately set out to write a piano trio that was almost like a wall of sound piano trio. Because the idea of a piano trio, you think of this quite nice music where the, where the melody is exchanged between the cello and the, and, the, and the violin, and then the piano shouldn't dominate too much. And, and you know, nice Sunday tea with cucumber sandwiches. And, uh, I mean, not to, there are great masterpieces of the piano trio. And cucumber repertoire. sandwiches are delicious. They are really delicious, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you cut the crusts? Of course. <laughs> How else would you have a cucumber Well, sandwich? see, I'm Irish, not English, so we wouldn't. We would leave the ah, cross thing. Uh, no, you can have high tea at the Shelburne where you, you don't cut the crusts, actually. But low tea sort of has the crusts. Low the, tea yeah. has the crusts. <laughs> so anyway, with the, I mean, you've hit on something that, that's kind of important to me. There, I often think of Ligeti's atmosphere as a really important piece because that started off as a piece that he was writing in the studios in Cologne. And he found that the technology was too cumbersome to realize it. So he realized it using an orchestra. Uh, and electronic sound had influenced the way he approached writing for the orchestra. And that's definitely the case of me. I love that uh, because especially sort of in my childhood... When we were talking about electronic music, it was often electronics trying to imitate, poorly sort of, uh, trying to imitate acoustic instruments. Right? Yeah, so you yeah. had kind of early general MIDI oh, soundtracks yes, with know. you know fake trumpets and whatnot, and everyone was like, that's, that's so god-awful. Um, yeah. So I love this approach, which you're saying Ligeti took, and, and you as well, where yeah. you're inspired by things that can be or, or were first achieved electronically yeah. um, to write basically in a new idiom for these very, very old instruments. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense that as a composer, you should try as much as you possibly can and being true to yourself to try and create something new in some sort of way, you know, uh, and, and that sounds very grand, but I think it's a, you know, it's a noble enough uh, intention, you know. Stuff that I do, I often think of my pieces for instruments and retuned instruments as being also kind of pieces in themselves and also etudes for my thinking about how I would write just normal acoustic music. And I'm really influenced by things I've done with electronics and trying to recreate that just in the acoustic realm. And that's a big thing in Bob that I wanted to write, have these sonorities where you had these pulsing sonorities which... You can't imagine these three instruments producing that sound, and yet you can if you pick these pitches. Listen for a couple minutes as Donica stacks seemingly more and more voices into these thick, overstuffed textures. It's easy to forget there's only ever three people making this sound.
from today's program, you can go to q2music.org. When we get back, we'll hear about eccentric European modernists, gender confusion, and Irish culture. Stay tuned. Music's first podcast, Meet the Composer, is finally here. Subscribers to the MTC podcast get not only immersive, plush interviews with some of the most innovative, brilliant, and weird composers out there, they get exclusive recordings of music performed by some of today's hottest ensembles. On August 12th, podcast subscribers can download an exclusive track by Andrew Norman as part of our bonus track series. It's all available at qtmusic.org and on iTunes. From New York's Q2 Music, this is Meet the Composer, the show that minds the brains of classical musicians. There's kind of a stunning directness to the pedagogy of classical music. As a violinist, you can study with a woman who studied with a guy, who studied with a dude, who studied with Joachim, who premiered the Brahms Violin Concerto. In composition, the same rules apply. There have even been entire composition studios whose membership has made up most of a major musical movement, such as the Second Viennese School's Schoenberg and his students Berg and Webern. Along those lines, today's guest, Irish composer Donica Dennehy, has had a pretty interesting musical education. You spent some time in Paris with the spectral icon Gerard Grisé. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? You know, I actually wrote to Grisé, and I sent him his, my, some of my music at the time when I was kneeling out, because I was thinking of returning to Europe. He uh, wrote me this lovely note that it was really powerful music and that I could come and study with him at the Paris Conservatoire if I want. So I actually turned up at the Paris Conservatoire and I could see instantly he was really disappointed when he saw me because he thought I was a woman, <laughs> you know, because my name ends in an A. And I, I instantly I could see, oh, this is not what he expected. And... Um, but so I sat in a few of those classes and I found them very hierarchical, you know, it was words from the master, no disrespect, but, and uh, they were all writing the same type of music and all the same type of surface. Uh, now, others like James Tenney, 
thought of it in a much more kind of platonic, theoretical way, that uh, this is the overtone series, you know, you have the first harmonic, the second harmonic, the third harmonic, and they have this particular kind of tuning to each other. And he would just write these pieces that kind of traversed in a kind of monolithic way through the overtone series. And they're really beautiful pieces, like Critical Band. Whereas the French guys did it more based on analysis of, of real sounds. So I found what's amazing when you use this kind of stuff in your harmony is that you actually produce timbre as well. It's not just harmony. That's the amazing thing. And it's, it's hard to just sort of say that unless you do it and you feel it. And, and you can even feel it like the way things resonate. You really produce these kind of new timbres as well. And that's what drew me to it. What I didn't like about French spectral music on the surface, in terms of the gestures of the way the pieces worked, it was all part of this kind of modernist discourse. So you felt like, even though they were using this tool, which you find incredibly evocative and very, very attractive, they were just applying that to a whole style of modernism that didn't really appeal to you. Yes, yeah. Uh, now, there were pieces that, for me, were real landmarks, in particular Grise, Nasa Spass Acoustique, this collection of seven pieces. That's, an, that's a real uh, important statement. Then it became a kind of st- an acceptable style, and people became more concerned with the kind of surface of it and what was allowed, you know, a certain type of uh, spectrally influenced modernism, which didn't really interest me because I was more interested in the kind of ecstatic repetition, you know, which comes more from uh, minimalism or post-minimalism, you know. So what happened after you uh, studied with Grise for a little bit? Where did you move? Well, I actually didn't end up studying with him. I sat in for a few and I decided, uh, I actually decided to go to Holland. So I went to go to the Institute of Synology and uh, Actually, I ended up mainly hanging out with Louis Andreessen, who became a kind of mentor. So it's polar opposite. Louis wouldn't do anything with overtones. But I really clicked with Louis. He didn't seem too disappointed that I I wasn't a woman. (laughs) Yeah, well, when I think about Grise's music, I can sort of, I I almost visually picture it in a very visually different way than I picture Andreessen. Yeah. um, Whose music, well, how would you describe uh, the music of Louis Andreessen? more interested in the kind of visceral type of music. It's strongly influenced by Stravinsky in a way, but it's Stravinsky on acid, sort of minimalistically uh, applied, as it were. He's really strong on this kind of motoric gestures, which then suddenly slab into each other. And also he's politically engaged. So, I mean, there was all, I always had an attraction to Andreessen's music since I heard De Stas. It has this kind of real excitement. And he took a lot from minimalism, but it was dirtier. You felt it was his. He had made his own. I mean, it was obvious he was massively influenced. If you listen to the music before, he discovered the early minimalists, and he discovered them just as they were happening. And then what happened when he discovered, like, early glass and rush? It, it, it was a huge change in his music. But it's his music, too, you know, and it really feels strong and... You know, sometimes if you feel not, in so, you know, it's a slow morning, stick on the start and it's like, wow. So after studying in Ireland, Illinois, Paris, and the Netherlands, Donica found himself back in his hometown of Dublin with a job as lecturer at Trinity College. Worried he would fall into a purely pedagogical, performance-free lifestyle, Donica set about founding his own new music group, the Crash Ensemble. That's right. <laughs> sort of another hat that you wear. Yeah. Is that sort of a radically different job than that of composer? Uh, no, not really. I mean, when I returned to Ireland after these studies, I was a bit worried that, because I'd got a job in Trinity, uh, lecturing in music, and I was a bit worried that that would become my life then. I actually was in fear of it. I mean, I really enjoyed it, but I didn't want that just to be it. So I, I sort of, out of panic, decided I have to set up my own new music ensemble because... 
I won't have an outlet for my music otherwise in, in Dublin. It's interesting because I feel like there are so many composers where their brass ring is sort of an academic teaching post so they can just sit there in their studio and write music and teach and have yeah. their little quasi-monastic existence. Yeah. But I guess that was really not only not what you wanted but kind of horrifying to you? It was, yes. Yeah, I was terrified of that because I also, in a way, they didn't hire me because they wanted me to teach everything in a way. When I first started, it was teaching 20 hours. So it wasn't that they were sort of, we want you to compose. And I mean, now they are, but I think at the start, they, they probably, they, they didn't care whether I composed or not. It was to teach classes in composition and in music technology. And you could easily just get into that. And I suppose I didn't want to just compose in isolation because I thought there would be no outlet for me to hear it. You know, you have a feedback mechanism when you have an ensemble. And it was vital for me, I think, in, in developing my voice. I mean, I felt really lucky. It was hard work, though. In the early days, I would often stay up through the night, like, really, because I'd have to be writing these new lectures. Then I was setting up the group and composing, and I had very little sleep for a while. <laughs> This piece is called Junk Box Fraud, and it was the first piece he wrote for Crash in its inaugural year of 1997. So bear in mind, Donica is developing curricula both in composition and music technology while taking a Crash course in arts admin, so to speak. This piece is a great example of how Donica expertly blends electronics with acoustic instruments. Do you feel like you're inspired by the possibilities of technology or do you feel like you're using technology to sort of create an unattainable mental thing? Uh, I'm not inspired necessarily by technology. I'm not a tech geek at all. In fact, I have a new phone that I got through AT&T, you know, here, and it's an Android. I barely know how to operate it. It's like, oh, man, and then I'm just trying to text. is really... and. Um, so I'm not in, like I'm not trying to get the newest. You know, there are people who are early adopters. Uh, Alan Pearson, for example, he everything he knows instantly how to use it, and uh, so I'm actually not like that. But what it in what I do think of it is I can uh, accomplish things that I that I can't necessarily accomplish without it, and in particular, that's a kind of sonic thing. I'm really interested in it for a kind of new new sonic possibilities and. Uh, especially in these pieces where I'm using, where essentially they're for instruments and reaching the instruments and then bringing out elements of the resonance. And, And there I find technology really useful. So the first piece of yours that I ever did here was uh, Grog's Boss, which we'll hear in just a little bit on yeah. the show. Uh, but one of the things that strikes me about that piece is how kind of ballsy it is to write a piece called Love and Death and how much emotional content there is in this work. Is this something that has always been really sort of a big influence in your music? Yeah, I certainly got tired with titles like Synchronism and things like that. I mean, so, you know, new music for so long was trying to be completely removed, you know, in, in this almost like this a scientific kind of thing. But there, there was a kind of conversion for me along the way. I mean, you know, I had been a proper grad student and properly ironic. And I love irony in, in, in music as well. And even when I set up Crash, you know, I had these pieces like Junk Box Fraud that are full of kind of energy, but they have a kind of ironic edge to them as well. And I suppose around 2005, I wrote this piece for violin and orchestra, which is quite overtly emotional in places. And I really felt this was a kind of a change where I didn't mind having this in my music. But, you know, I need it. I need it as an outlet. And so I thought, well, if I need it, it should be in the music.
But you have to be wary of it too. I, I don't want to, even though there's a strong emotional content in my music, I also wanted to try and be a new way of expressing it and not too neo-romantic or anything like that, that somehow using new materials, I still allow it in. I mean, there are huge disadvantages to being Irish because we don't have this massive structure like they have in other European countries for supporting new music. But there are also advantages, and that is the sense of liberty. And I actually wouldn't give up the liberty for the other things. So in a way, I feel the liberty to do what I want. So I suppose from elastic harmonic on, it certainly became more overt. imbuing his work with his very human experiences can come across as almost audacious. It grips you. It puts your life in illuminating relief. I actually need to write music, you know, it's, it's a fundamental need. It's probably a diagnosable mental disorder. Let's listen for a few minutes. this piece, Elastic Harmonic, or any other piece from the program, you can go to our website, q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. Stick around, because after the break, we'll hear how Irish Shan No singing is blended with the harmonic series to create something totally new. Stay tuned. have to be near a computer to listen to Q2 music. The WQXR app makes it mobile. Listen to the best in new music wherever you want, whenever you want. Download the WQXR app for free to stream Q2 music on your phone or tablet. From New York Public Radio's Q2 Music, this is Meet the Composer. I'm Nadia Sirota.
the first time I heard the Nicodemus Heat music. I'm on the podium. I'm sitting with Bob Hurwitz, president of None Such Records. I'm at a rehearsal for the Bang on a Can All Stars. In a concert in Cork City, which is a city in the south of Ireland. Um, I drove especially to hear them. We're sitting in his car and... He says, I have something I want to play for you. And we're in the midst of performing Gragu's Boss. And in walks Donica Dennehy with this amazing Irish accent. And he's playing Gro August Boss. This is always one of the most reliably emotional musical experiences that I have. I am just blown away. No matter how many times, I, I always think I'm prepared for it. But every time I do it, it's really... It's very intense, overwhelming emotional experience. I'm blown away because this music doesn't sound like anybody else's music. Music itself was very vibrant, very fresh, very, very contemporary. So pained and colorful and expressive. It's non-stop, so you have to have this breathless drive in your playing. His approach is extremely rigorous and steadfastly kind of detailed. It's a powerful it's emotional, it's music that has a tremendous sense of dynamism and urgency. With multiple meter changes and lots of accents and driving rhythms that went from beginning to end. And makes uh, an immediate impact, a powerful impact on listeners of all kinds. And there's a real intensity, it's fierce. And by fierce I mean you kind of hear immediately where the piece is going. It's not nebulous. The writing is, is skilled and exacting. It speaks very directly, and there is great energy. That's what I find so distinctive. It's incredibly exciting, very enervating, sort of, I don't know, it's just, it, it, it makes your blood move. My name is Irla O'Linard. My name is Dawn Upshaw. I'm Alan Pearson. Hi, I'm Lisa Moore. And I would lay my head upon your breast And you would You seem to be, as a composer, quite into the written word. I mean, do you think the fact that your father was a writer has influenced your attraction to specific texts or poetry? Yeah, I'm more and more interested in the written word and the way that my music can engage with the written word and, and semantics. And it's definitely got to do with my father being a writer. And it's also got to do with the kind of veneration of writers in Irish society. I mean, you know, the poet is a respectable position to have in Irish society still. Our president is a poet. You know, the people know who are poets and writers. And uh, so there's a huge kind of joy in language and different ways of expressing yourself. I will arise and go now. For always, night and day, I hear lake water lapping with low sounds of the shore. When I stand on the roadway or on the pavement's grey, I hear it in the deep heart's core. I become more and more interested in the voice as well. Like, not only in Grogus Boss, I since wrote a song cycle on Yeats for Dawn Upshaw and Crash Ensemble. And it's based on the poems of W.B. Yeats. felt a real power as a composer to do my reading of those texts and 
sometimes slightly against what might be the obvious reading of the text, and I really took joy in that. And some of it wouldn't even be apparent immediately. You'd have to listen to it quite a lot, and then suddenly, oh, yeah, that's why. It and so I really love that interaction. kind of frees up an emotional part to me uh, because I can be quite structural as well thinking about music and somehow when I deal with meaning it also frees up some other part of me it's also like writing for voice as well it frees up something for me particular approaches to the six poems that I set here, which are really kind of about, in a way, the unsustainability of love and Yeats' anger at time and what time does to us. We're all angry at time. In 2007, Donica wrote a landmark work for his group, The Crash Ensemble, with the Irish singer Irla O'Leonard entitled Gra August Boss, which means love and death in Gaelic. The piece uses a lot of the techniques we've been talking about today, including the overtone series, explicit emotional content, and tightly pulsing harmonies. So, Donica, this piece obviously just has, I feel like, a very successful manipulation of, of real emotion and real feeling and, and energies. There are so many different components to this music. They seem kind of familiar, and somehow they, they sort of end up becoming something completely other. I know this is a broad question, but how did you sort of develop this compositional voice? Um, well, I suppose there, there is one quite unfamiliar ingredient in that, which is this Shannos vocal tradition. And that term shanos means old style in, in Gaelic. Uh, shan is old and nos is style. And that's a kind of unaccompanied vocal uh, music that is, is transmitted orally. Uh, and since they don't know how long, but it definitely goes back hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, predating the famine. And so that is an ingredient in this, which is familiar to those who know Irish traditional music. And, um, but somehow when, it's, when it was sort of contaminated with my own musical voice, um, something new came out of it. It's, it's like uh, cooking something and suddenly you've got a, a new taste. Oh, no. I think one of the things about this final piece that we're going to talk about that is so moving is just the Sean Nose tradition and, and the, the way that um, Irlo Leonard is just obviously doing something that he's very good at and cares quite a bit about. Ashley. 
believe it or not, this is the same singer, Irla O'Leonard, when he was 14, singing Ashling Gale, Bright Vision, one of the same songs Donica used as a departure point for Gra August Boss. That electronic-sounding reverb is actually just a piano with a sustain pedal depressed, so we're hearing the strings of the piano vibrating sympathetically with Irla's voice. The effect is totally acoustic. So the Irish Shannos tradition, in a weird sort of way, after independence. So Ireland got independence from Britain in 1922. It's quite late, really. The power of the Catholic Church was had then become immense because the Catholic Church was kind of associated with the resistance uh, against English rule. And of course, these Shando songs are about intimate love, about wanting death to release you from the power of it. And so I actually wanted to really concentrate on that, which I thought had been less paid attention to because of the way that the power of the Catholic Church has tried to sanitize the tradition. I mean, that's not been the case in the last 20, 30 years, but up till that, yes, you know. So what are the two songs that you use? Uh, one is Ashling Gal, Bright Vision. Which is about a woman who becomes pregnant. She talks about if in the act, in the act of making love, that she becomes pregnant. She doesn't want that he would deny it. And then the other is um, Tom Schinter, the Huma, which means I'm stretched on your grave. So, so it's kind of a bit obsessive. So that's why the piece is kind of obsessive. It really is an exercise in sort of obsessing about these things. chunk of this piece now, like four minutes or so, but I wish we had time to play more. Like Donica said, this piece is obsessive. This is the interior of a fevered brain. Can you? 
Sen I'm Jonathan Stone from East Orange, New Jersey. Meet the Composer was produced by Nadia Sirota and Alexander Overington. Thanks to Hannes Brown, Elena Saavedra Buckley, and Paulus Van Horn. Our executive producer is Alex Ambrose. A very special thanks to Irla O'Leonard, Dawn Upshaw, Lisa Moore, Alan Pearson, and None Such Records. Links to all the music featured on today's show, along with Donica Dennehy's website, are available at q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. Thanks to New Music USA for their flexibility with the use of the Meet the Composer name, which became famous through their legacy organization founded by composer John Duffy. Also, special thanks to our Kickstarter supporters, including Randy Isratti, Philip Schroeder, Laura Cartman, Patrick Glynn, Ben Wiskita, and Margaret Hunt. You're listening to New York's Q2 Music, part of Classical 105.9 WQXR. Q2 Music is a listener-supported online station devoted to the music of living composers. Q2 is home for immersive festivals, live webcasts, and on-demand concerts from today's leading music performers. Find us at Q2 on Facebook, Q2 Music on Twitter, and online at q2music.org.